Greetings, friends. It's Monday, October 23rd. This is your Chapo Trap House coming at you. It's Felix and I today, but holding down the third mic slot on today's episode is returning Chapo champion David Roth. Hey, David, welcome. Thanks for having me. How are you? Doing good. Um, to lead off today's show, I have three words, one thing to say. Those three words, tactical Jerry Orbach. <laughs> That's right, folks. I can actually... I can actually share. I'm, I'm very pleased to share with you some good news about our boy, Matt. I'm very, very happy to share with you that he is out of the hospital and on to the next stage of his recovery. So can we get some, get some hearts going for Matt in the chat? Yeah. Very three, pleased to, to uh, share this information with you and uh, also to rename this show Tactical Jerry Orbeck. So yeah, uh, kicking off uh, today's show, um, been a hell of a week. Uh, I mean, like before I say the news is all bad, I would like to note the tens of thousands of people in the streets of every American major, every major American city, as well as, uh, you know, London, Paris, elsewhere in the world, uh, all standing in solidarity with Palestine and demanding a ceasefire and an end to the bombardment of a captive civilian population. You know, like, I'm sure we're going to talk today about a lot of the absurd propaganda that's come out of this war. But like, I, I really do want to begin today's show um, expressing like something that Felix said on last Monday's episode. It seems like the, our politicians, the U.S. government, and of course our media is all on board for this, and they're all covering for what we all see happening in front of our eyes. But as far as public opinion and the weight of the world's conscience goes, it is failing spectacularly. I mean, just like, uh, I don't know, like, just what, what are your guys' thoughts leading off this week of just like what we've seen over the past week in terms of the horror of what's happening in Gaza, but also like the attempts of the Israeli government, the U.S. government, and, uh, you know, a compliant media to, to, manage, to manage the perception of what everyone with two eyes can see is happening right in front of their own. Well, like, you know, as far as the horrors, it's, um, you know, it's like mostly, as we said with uh, Mohammed, and as we said in the episode after that, it, it, it's like what you expect to see from Israel in Gaza but just dialed up so far, you know, like we've seen them hit hospitals before we've seen them hit residential zones. Um, but they seem to be targeting individual ambulances in this incredibly specific way. Bakeries, which I don't recall them taking out every single bakery that they could before, like a, a new level of evil, which is shocking even for them. And, you know, it seems like the MO for them is to, you know, whether it's the bakeries or individual ambulances, make it so that people in Gaza are afraid to even help. I mean, people there will help regardless. They've shown enormous fortitude in the face of all this, but, you know, really only comparable, if not in literal method, but um, objective to you know, the first wave of executions of Jews in Lithuania in 41 or uh, Reinhard Heydrich in Prague. But the media or professional Israel advocate side, I um, I think they're a little lost. Um, I don't know if you saw the uh, Starbucks, the yeah. Orthodox uh, Business Council said that um, because of the Starbucks Union's uh, statement on Palestine that you know, now if you get a uh, even coffee flavored coffee, if you even get coffee flavored <laughs> coffee from Starbucks, you might as well be drinking Jewish blood, which is yeah. like, I don't think I've ever heard. Like, have you ever heard of someone who hates Jews is like, oh, my favorite Jewish blood. <laughs> I, I have the quote here. It says uh, the chamber is also campaigning to have Starbucks close stores and dismiss thousands of workers who, quote, support Hamas after their union posted a statement on X saying solidarity with Palestine. The chamber has launched a boycott of the coffee chain under the slogan. Drinking a cup of Starbucks is drinking a cup of Jewish blood. <laughs> I really thought that uh, Felix was dialing that one up for comic effect there. No, <laughs> actually underselling it a little bit. Like you put more qualifiers in there than they did. Yeah, I could not believe I thought someone fuck with it or something. It yeah. was just like, uh, I mean, drinking Jewish blood is a, like just if I saw that divorce from context, I would be like, 
Is that like a guy who hates Jude saying that? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It's so fucking weird. <laughs> it's so it's like one of the weirdest things I've ever heard anyone yep. say. Also, not like an old testament formulation. Like that's just like a weird guy's brain coming up with something unpleasant off the top. Like it's not the kind of thing where you could just like sort of cite it and be like, oh well, you know, it's actually like a, a Talmudic callback. Like it's just people that are completely out of their minds with it. It feels weird to you know, to have hit that sort of like butt after this stuff. I mean, because it is an incredibly brutal and disheartening conflict. And yet there is this sense that all of this stuff seems like it is not resonating the way that it did after September 11th, which was that big comparison that initially I saw after this started was that, you know, it felt like 2002 all over again. And there is a lot of that, like institutionally, I feel like the level and style of fuckery is like pretty one to one. Like the Times edited yeah. stuff out of a Thomas yeah. Friedman yeah. column yesterday. Like <laughs> Thomas Friedman being too spicy is like very, very 2002, like boot in your ass vibes. And I yet mean, it's like, like, I don't think it's really like hitting necessarily. It's like, not no, yeah. what it's doing it's in not. polls. It just looks oafish. I was talking to Catherine over the weekend and like, obviously, like I think on previous episodes, I said, like, if you didn't live through 9-11 and the war in Iraq, like, congratulations, you get a chance to see what it was like. And it's, that's certainly true in the way and what we're seeing from the media. I mean, like saying that it's a confirmation when an IDF spokesperson shows computer printouts that say Al Qaeda cyanide gas on it. And right. then you just be like, well, yep, here we go. And but like, I think what we're seeing is like a generational divide of people like, you know, our age who lived through 9-11 and the Iraq war. But what I think what we're really seeing is a divide between people who watch cable news and people who don't like there are pe- the people who watch the news the, you know, like they're they're totally in the in locked in. They're in the locked room. They're not yeah. getting out of it. But for most people under the age of 40, like cable news or the New York Times is not like considered like the word of God. And you know, after 9-11 and the lead up to the Iraq war, like you could see the same thing working on people my age. And like even I've, I found myself susceptible to it. It's just like this um, this demand to do continual homework to find out like something to find out the true facts and data about what is very clearly like, you know, you don't need to do homework to like to, to override your own common sense and fucking eyesight. That's the thing that was so jarring about like that period was that, I mean, I remember like the little bits of like sort of rinky dink activism that I was doing in 2002 and 2003. It was like all of it felt like you were sort of pulling on the lever that was supposed to deliver a response if the things that I'd been taught worked a certain way actually worked that way and then you would pull the lever and like either nothing would happen or like a boxing glove would emerge from a concealed panel and sock you in the nuts and it was incredibly (laughs) like dispiriting in that way and yet i feel like there's you know as you said like cable all of these things like the spectacle is the same many of the same people that cast the bad votes 20 odd years ago are like still there and fucking absolutely geeked up to cast another bad vote if they can do it and yet I don't think that, I mean, anybody that sort of remembered how that works, first of all, like you're not expecting necessarily to like file a petition with somebody and then expect them to read it carefully or whatever. I just don't think that any of this is fooling anyone. The hard part is just that, you know, it all sort of seems like it runs on rails anyway. I'm not even sure of that anymore. I mean, so the first week, you know, there were all these absolutely absurd articles that were, you know, they ran the range from like, you know, I'm I'm to the left of uh, everyone. You know, I supported Elizabeth Warren, <laughs> but um, Bailey's a friend. I've met the dog. Yeah, yeah I've uh, yeah, I was inside the inflatable bait. <laughs> I'm to the left of everyone. But like, guys, if we don't nuke Gaza now, like the the cause, the Palestinian cause is dead in America. The left is dead. And it's like, I didn't think, I didn't think that obviously, but I did think like, okay, this is like, this is going to suck. We're probably not going to see what we saw in 2021 where there was like an increased presence, both in media and uh, protest in favor of Palestine. It's going to be kind of a third rail for a little while, but like, you know, the strategy here by Hamas was, you know, that like, what are we going to get from Western sympathy? Right. And um, instead, this is the most unprecedented. This is the most 
public support I've ever seen for Palestine in America to a point where like I never actually expected to see this. I just I I literally did not expect to see like tens of thousands in like every major American city, like fucking tens of thousands of people in Dallas. And I, I like you look, you know, like David, you talked about how like the weird butt of it all, where it's like there are these just terrible horrors that you try not to believe that humans are capable of doing, like just the worst, most cynical zero sum view of humanity boiled down to uh, just the most cynical Nazi-esque birth rates and blood and soil view of the world. And then the sort of like silliness of the response in America. But I think another angle to that is like when you, you look at these protests and you look at the state of the Palestinian movement in America and the West at large and you see how robust it is, but also see like fucking normal, happy families and young people there. Yeah, that's that's huge. And like. It re- in 2002, it literally was just like a 67-year-old former PFLP voter who lives in North Chicagoland for some reason and like d- d- people like me. Yeah, it was weird. There were there were lots of people in the streets then too, but I think that there was an abstraction to it that it was sort of like you knew what was going to happen and you knew that no matter what you did, it was going to happen. And so people sort of showed up and there was that sort of like – you know, everybody sort of turning out, making it clear that this was not something that they wanted. But I think that you're correct in identifying that, like, the spirit of it is different because that was the sort of thing that was organized on that, like, you know, 2002 internet. It was very, like, moveon.org, like, emails with a million BCCs on it type shit. Whereas, like, this, it feels like I, I wouldn't have guessed that this movement was there ready to be activated, that there was this spirit necessarily ready to be activated. And it's sort of heartening to see that there is more energy for humane politics below the surface than you would have guessed. Because I think back then, I thought that there was going to be more than there actually was. Like, it just turned out that the well was dry, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and, and I feel like a lot of the ridiculous responses we're seeing like we talked about the, the drinking Jewish blood at Starbucks, but just like whether it is someone whose job it is to like put this shit out there, whether it's like the guy in the IDF who makes um like brochures where it's like, this is what the Hamas guy was carrying. This is a map of every JCC in America <laughs> and instructions on how to make a hydrogen bomb. And you look at it and it's like Hagar the Horrible but with Arabic <laughs> written all over it. And you're like, what the fuck? Or just, like, random people who are just, like, completely lost it. Like, have lost touch with everything and are just, like, screaming at every, like, picture a picture of the protest that you, you see. I think there is, like, actually this massive psychic terror and damage inflicted uh, upon these people by seeing, like, just how, like, normal and nice and widespread, like, the pro-Palestine side is. Yeah, I think that was an an enormous psychic hit to them. Another point I'd like to make is like, in addition, like to the tens of thousands of people that were in the streets in Manhattan and Brooklyn, just just Manhattan and Brooklyn yesterday, but add to that Chicago, L.A., Dallas. Like, I mean, the list goes on massive, massive protest demanding a ceasefire, demanding our government stop aiding and abetting the war crimes of Israel. I would just like to say, like. According to public opinion polls, that is like the majority opinion of the United States right now. Yep. The poll I saw, uh, only 12% of Americans when asked strongly disagree that there should be a ceasefire in Gaza. Only 12%. It's 100% of our politicians and media in both the Republican and Democratic Party. Yep. But it's just like, I'd just like to ask, where are the counter-protests demanding that uh, the, the bombing continue? Where's the yeah. groundswell of public support for the Israeli military? I mean, this was always sort of the way it goes, though. This is the part that, like, is so crushing about it, is that, like, that was the case. It was, like, 100,000 people in the streets being like, I don't think that we should invade and occupy Iraq. They had nothing to do with the thing that happened to us here, like, 80 blocks away. And, like, the response to that was just that, like, it made Dick Cheney worse somehow. Yeah, yeah, but, like, the Iraq war had, like, majority support. It did, and... and it definitely also like that was, again, the sort of thing where like this other side of it was just not it, it was not the same sort of energy. And it also didn't seem like it really like was working on people one way or the other that like maybe they weren't as inured. Maybe the general public uh, hadn't yet realized that watching cable news makes you insane. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like I don't know, just the 
the people who sold the Iraq war, many of which are still here. Joe Biden. I don't know. They, yeah, Joe Biden, the literal Democratic whip to get votes for the resolution. I don't know. They just don't seem to have it together in the same way. I, I would say this I, is I the think advantage that's, of gerontocracy is that all of yeah, these guys are just yeah. like playing senior circuit ball. Now, everybody that was uh, like just humming, sitting mid 90s for is, uh, like a is, few years. Uh, the, the neocons of the Bush administration have moved into the big three league of cable news appearances. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is literally like when they called Abe Simpson and his friends in to uh, act as strike breakers. The important thing was that I had an onion on my belt which was a style at the time. They didn't have white onions because of the war. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, I got to say, like, uh, in terms of at least my favorite bit of hilarious propaganda, hilarious and blood propaganda this week, it definitely had to be the, <laughs> look, it's the, uh, you got you to find a little silver lining to the dark cloud. And it's just, it's the smiles that keep us going. So my personal favorite think? piece of absurd propaganda this week was the Islamic jerky boys call that they released. Yes. <laughs> hey there, chuckle tits. This is Muhammad Akbar. Yeah, we bombed that freaking <laughs> hospital. We all know Israel doesn't target civilians. Cheddar cheese dick. <laughs> the idea yeah. of activating like just the sizzle chest protocols yes. in 2023. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, would... I'd like, I understand, like, they, they, they count on the fact that, like, they're not even trying to be convincing to, like, any normal person. This is just, yep. this is the fig leaf that they need to give to the, the world press so that they can continue doing their war crimes. But it's just, like, it, are, are these the actions of a side that's, like, really confident in, in, in not just, like, their, their, their moral justness of this cause, but even their victory in it? Yeah, no, they, like, do you feel in control? Do you right. feel in control when you, like, have two guys open audacity speaking like bad Arabic and being like, um, you know, clearly that was Islamic Jihad's rocket that killed all those people, but we should blame it on Israel because there that's actually, it's the only army in the world that promotes LGBT people. And they even have <laughs> vegan options. Uh, you know, like if you want to wear combat boots and, um, several celebrities actually perform concerts in Israel Anyway, I was talking to my slaves, and I think we should we should inflate the casualties so gay people in the West, who we would rape to death if they were here, so they um, defame Israel, which is the safest, the only safe place in the world for Jewish people. It does have the feeling uh, to me, especially on Netanyahu's part, of a guy who is absolutely playing with his back to the wall and also is like a, a pretty evil guy. I mean, I think that for Netanyahu, it's like there's no limit of how many, certainly how many Palestinian people he would kill if it kept him out of jail a little bit longer. He had a fake guy show up at his press conference pretending to be a, a family member of one of the hostages and going, I support you, BB. Kill them all. Yeah. yeah Jesus. <laughs> it's so fucking low rent. Yeah. It's so low rent. Yeah. Well, it seems like in all that's like the through line through all of this. I mean, this is a, like a very feared and respected military that does have, you know, all the whatever state of the art hardware and, you know, highly trained personnel and whatever. And they're doing fucking security for settlers in the West Bank. Like someone drove a car through a fence that they weren't paying attention to and started all this stuff. You want to like say that it's necessarily as simple as that, but it's not the sort of thing where the more brutal you are or the more harsh you are, that somehow makes you safer. I think that that's another lesson of 2002 that we now know not to be the case. And yet, obviously, that still is, that's the one thing that Netanyahu, Netanyahu has to bank on, I feel like, is the idea that like, I just have, you have to let me finish killing everybody or else you're never going to be okay. Yeah, but he's in this impossible spot where it's like his promise for like literally like 40 years at this point, right? Is you have like you have to let me finish killing people, but also like when I kill people, it's going to be like low cost, low involvement, it's going to be easy. <laughs> like you won't, you won't even have to think about it. And it they're afraid to even start the ground invasion. Like this is one of the craziest things I've ever seen. Uh, just as far as like an army losing its capability so quickly. Well, I mean, I, th I think I think that the, the choice to them is pretty clear. And like either they're going to have to commit to a ground invasion that like I, th I think is pretty clear. Nobody has any confidence that will be successful for them or continue doing what they're doing, which is just the ongoing liquidation of a civilian population that they wish didn't exist. And they will 
kill as many people as possible uh, and then for- forcibly displace many more. And yeah. I, again, I must stress, the Biden White House is giving them full military and diplomatic support to do so. That is what it, that is what is a question here. Everything else is just homework assigned to you by fucking cowards. Mm-hmm. Yep. I got nothing to add to that. Uh, as long as we're talking about Biden, as long as we're talking about Biden and, you know, just the, the few the few grim reasons to smile over the past week. Chris, can you cue up the clip of Biden and Blinken on that fucking on Air Force One? At the hospital, sir, people all over the region um, are upset about the hospital and don't necessarily believe uh, you or the Israelis that they didn't have anything to do with it. You have a message to the people in the streets right now. Well, I can understand why in this circumstance they wouldn't believe. I can understand that. And, but uh, I would not notice I don't say things like that unless I have faith in the source from which I've gotten it. Our Defense Department says it's highly unlikely that it was rarely but if it had a, a, a different footprint and an intercepted some anyway. And uh, so that's why if you notice I didn't say it first. I didn't, I wanted to make sure that I knew. And look and I'm not suggesting uh, you guys you get, you get, get the idea. You get the idea. Feel it, feeling fine. Yeah, the thing that you can't get from hearing that, and I think you can, you can sort of get it, is the presence of numerous panicked aides standing over Biden's shoulders. <laughs> Anthony Blinken is standing right behind him and looks terrified. Yes. Yeah. His his eyes. You can, you can see the whites of his eyes glowing. <laughs> yeah. Anthony Blinken is there, and he's like, I don't want the punani right now. <laughs> This is not like, time to be a hoochie coochie man. He's like, he really sounds like he's dying. There. Yeah, this, and this is, is this is did, the did worst notice, I've ever seen him. Yeah, do you remember like um the the first week when uh like all the Biden people were like Joe Biden is staying up till two a.m. tonight. Yep. David Frum actually had a really fun. I you know a lot of uh, Steve Martin in the jerk moments. Uh, but David Frum had a funny one when Joe flew to Israel and it was something like this Joe ain't no wink sleepy. Hmm. And I was like, you should, you should, I think you should apologize. I think you should like go to prison for that. It is also funny that for a country that's now run by its worst and oldest people that like being able to stay up late is that's the status thing that that's like the news that you would link. Not that like he's reading all of his briefings, like, all the way through like everybody knows that's that's hard and boring but the idea of being like he watched most of fallon last night okay so i think that should <laughs> yeah pretty much put that one to bed yeah and it's it's also like well look at this he's like going to israel and staying up pretty late he's the fucking president right <laughs> no one made him do this and, yeah. and like, like this was like survivor was on that night all right like he didn't want to go he had other plans but it's just like it looks like he got he, like his facelift is working, but like his chin tuck isn't, and there's like yeah. flesh that's just sort of loose at the bottom. This is the turkey jowl. It's not and like, like I don't follow politics. He looks pretty different every single time I see. Yeah, him. yeah. And like he, like he seems he, he is he seems fucking dead in this clip. Yeah, this I is. Say, like I, I just have to awaken from like, a deep sleep. This is this is about as humiliated as this country has ever. I mean, like as far as I've been alive. I mean, th- th- this is like top five most humiliating moments is seeing our senile crypt keeper president just dot her out to give like the full diplo to give the support and credibility of our intelligence community to the absurd lies that Israel the doing it's just like the fact that he's doing this on behalf of Israel. Because it's like George Bush and Dick Cheney, like they were lying on what they thought was America's like greedy self-interest that like something we wanted to do. But what it feels like once again feels like it's like Nobody knows what they're doing anymore. They're just reacting. And then yeah. they're, they're, he's just fucking like immolating America's credibility such that it exists anymore on a global stage on behalf of this rinky dink fucking ally that like, what are the, what are the fuck are they doing for us that's worth uh, uh, what we're kicking into them right now? And it's like pathetic, corrupt leadership that doesn't respect you and has gone out of its way to broadcast that it doesn't respect you. Like, that's the other thing. Like, what do you like? Netanyahu's never going to give you back any of this, even if you thought it was worth something, which I think it is like a very good question. Like, what exactly would that be worth? So to set fire to all this for I'm assuming that it is just that sort of like the thing that animates, I think, a lot of like 
geriatric DNC decision-making stuff, which is just they remembered a poll from 2003 or 2007 <laughs> and are just kind of acting off of it. It's just yeah. inertia. It just seems like it's like an algorithmic response. And like, right. I think they're underestimating how fucking, how much is going to blow up in their face. And we're seeing now with like, especially the Democratic Party, like, you know, uh, like a fucking John, that slob John Fetterman and his staff, like the whole first week they were like, kill them all. And I don't know if like they've changed their tune, but like it just Obama's statement today where it just seems like they're all like none of them are saying ceasefire. They're just saying, oh, we got to let some water in. And like, you know, we encourage Israel to respect international law and protect civilians. And the thing I'll notice about that is like Derek Davison pointed this out. And I think it's very important. Whenever you see one of these threads from someone from the Atlantic Council and like 10, 20 tweets into the thread, they're like, Obviously, Israel has a duty to protect innocent civilian life in Gaza. And then the previous 10 tweets are all laying out why any evidence of them failing to do that is actually Hamas disinformation. Let's just say you should, should, think, should make you go, yeah. hmm. What we call yeah. in the business the to be sure paragraph. It's like a staple of that type of like DNC or like that sort of writing and stuff like that. Because you're laying out a position like that you kind of know is bad or gross, but that you think might be interest, like interesting to the powerful people uh, that are reading it. And then at some point, yeah, then you have to like get all your, like just stack your caveats and then hit your conclusion and get out. Yeah. Uh, can we talk about uh, Fetterman? Fetterman was on Pod Save, <laughs> one of the Pod Save shows. He, uh, yeah, he was on the Pod Save show and presumably like they were celebrating at the greatest humanitarian uh, achievement of all time, 20 trucks uh, of like <laughs> fucking graham crackers for 2 million people that are being murdered. Uh, and uh, he was on there and he was talking about Hamas and a few times he referred to Hamas with the pronoun he <laughs> and the hmm. fucking subtitles they use, put it as they, but with like, you know, the sick uh, uh, brackets. And um, I, uh, that re- I, it really tickled me. When he was yeah, like, he's imagining like Carl Hamas, the worst yeah. guy in the world. <laughs> yeah, he was like Hamas. He always lies like this. <laughs> we knew a guy like Hamas in Braddock. I need to. I need to wear and one shorts, or I'll fucking kill myself. <laughs> no, but like as far as like the Democratic politicians go, like as I laid out, I think it's pretty clear where their constituents, how their constituents feel about it. The the bare minimum a ceasefire to the killing, like an end to the aerial bombardment of Gaza by the Israeli military. But like they have to like now that they're, I think they underestimated that because they're playing like they're, they're running in their head, the old script, which is that America will always stand with Israel. And it's just like the contortions that these people have to now come up with on the liberal side to justify, explain away or complicate again, the bare and basic fact that the Biden administration is providing is is abetting a genocide being carried out by a very close ally. And also I think running a real risk of like a bigger regional war because they won't say even the qualified stuff that you're saying. Even the idea of basically being like stop doing the fucking war crimes. If you you need to do your other shit whatever, like we always stand with you blah 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 like Lorm Ipsum, you know, democrat shit. This could go so much worse in a global way because of the fact that I think, again, like I think they are working pretty hard to justify it. I also don't get the sense that anybody's working really very hard at all. That like this all just sort of still feels like they're stuck on the factory settings of like what you're supposed to say in a situation like this and not appreciating the gravity micro or macro of like just how bad this could get. Yeah. With how bad it could get. And uh, like, okay. Even if you're just looking at this cynically, right? And I feel like a lot of previous calculations we've seen with the U.S. and Israel, it has operated under, I mean, the same assumption as the last 40 years of Israeli policy and the Iron Dome era, especially. Basically, that, like, it will be a low-cost occupation and suppression. That, like, look, this may be bad, this may look bad, but, like, they'll get it done soon, they know what they're doing, and, like, it'll be out of the news, That is, you know, it's no longer the case in the macro, but just as far as like this war, there's really no guarantee that they'll succeed. There's no guarantee that like the invasion of Gaza will go well for them. It'll certainly be horrible, like a historic, historic series of war crimes, but there's just like no guarantee that they'll be able to get it done without needing 
help in the form of like actual U.S. troops. And like, even if you're just being cynical, that is, I don't care if like a poll says that 60 odd percent of people like, like Israel in an abstract, no one is going to want to send fucking Marines to fight for Israel and Gaza. That is just not going, it's not going to be popular. It's definitely not going to be good. It uh, makes an incredibly dangerous situation far more dangerous. Uh, and I feel like none of these people realize just how much on the brink everything is. Yep. And uh, as I was talking about uh, our wonderful Democratic Party and their reaction to all this, I, I have to highlight the good work done by the congressman from Tel Aviv, Richie Torres. Oh, I my mean, God. The you got to remember that his district is like 85% Likudnik. Dude, dude, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, dude. The guy, the guy in the fake Afghan government that America put together, whatever guy in Afghan parliament represented Zebulon's district had proportionally more Jewish constituents <laughs> than Richie Torres. But it's just like the absolute obscenity. Of, of this guy just parking. And like, here's the deal. He represents, and I, I looked this up, he represents not like the top, one of the top 10 poorest congressional districts in America. He represents, by income per capita, the poorest congressional district in America. And what's so obscene about that to me is that there's no way he could get away with just being a mouthpiece for a foreign government if he represented a district with, with even 10 people who mattered. Because they, yeah. they might ask, why is my congressman only tweeting about Israel? Why is my not Jewish congressman accusing <laughs> Jewish peace organizations of not being Jewish? Yeah, we have potholes that need fixing. What right. the fuck Seriously. is going like, on this here? Is, all of our pipes are lead. Like this guy's main concern. Is, yeah, I think I mean, this is what's weird about. I think the Menendez story was sort of like similar to this, where it's like you just realize, first of all, like how cheap American politicians actually are. Like, yeah, like yeah. what it costs. You can like, buy it's them not, off for like, uh, like, 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 like box tickets to a football game. It is gift game. cards. It is Buffalo yeah. Wild Wings <laughs> gift cards, like three digits on it, but not four digits on it. And then also like, <laughs> and they, the other work that they're supposed to do, like they will just straight up not do. Like they will drop constituent services stuff if there's an opportunity to sell an anti-tank weapon to like the Egyptian government in a way that puts a little <laughs> money in your pocket. <laughs> yeah, Torres, um, he hasn't tweeted about the Bronx in two weeks. Um, <laughs> is like he's now so into it that like I get. I was under the impression that Richie Torres was like a lapsed Catholic, but he's become a rabbi in like a week, which is amazing. And he's he's a, the first of his type, a Jewish pope who can excommunicate Jewish people. Yeah. I've had my disagreements with the man, but incredibly impressive. Yeah. Not a lot of people. It takes a lifetime for a lot of people to get that sort of training. The idea that he could do all of it between... Like whatever I don't. What was his last post about the Bronx? Was it like when the Yankees traded Harrison Bader or something? Like what is, he's not, <laughs> not like even concerned. that. That man has never worn a Yankees hat in his life. No. Yeah, I was gonna say he makes like Eric Adams look like a hardcore sports fan. The idea of like <laughs> yeah. the team gets a lot of points. But it's like, all right, sir, thank you. I I realized something about Richie Torres. So the fact that Sean McElwee created him. Oh, makes he's Sean, one of those. Yeah, Sean McElwee gave us Richie Torres. Sean McElwee is a bizarro Jacob. <laughs> Isn't that astounding? <laughs> the big head scientist, Sean. <laughs> it's amazing. But yeah. Uh, doing the knowledge. Torres, um, he really doesn't like it when you point out that he took money from FTX and that one of Sean McElwee's financial foibles was a series of very weirdly timed donations to him in uh, amounts some people would say would indicate he was acting as a straw donor to Richie Torres. <laughs> he really does not like it when people point that out for what probably because he's innocent. Yeah, most that's, that's usually the thing that gets people upset when they're uh, the re like on the wrong uh, end of a series of straw donorship stuff. Felix, yeah. I mean, like, I don't want you to get too far out, too too far over your skis here because I am looking at a good deal of OSINT about the supposed straw donations and the number of our arrows posted on this uh, PDF have really completely <laughs> caused it out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, look, we can't even like this looks like Richie Torres was um, sleeping on a beanbag beanbag mattress at Sam Bankman Freed's um, disgusting Bahamas penthouse. 
That could that could be a hologram. We just like don't know. These guys are good at computers. You can't really rule any of that stuff out. <laughs> exactly. By the way, David, as long as we're talking about uh, SBF, uh, could you give us like the executive summary of Michael Lewis's <laughs> new book about him? <laughs> yeah, I had to read it. Uh, this was I was I, <laughs> our distinction. This is the most on brand shit there. I was I think the last person to review it. Like not because I absolutely nailed it so much, but it was like everybody else had filed earlier than me, and then I was able to come in at the end. Uh, the it's a it's a terrific book. It's a really great story if you want to um, uh, read about a man sleeping on a beanbag chair in cargo shorts that he never takes off. That's a really <laughs> kind of an inspire. And it's like a, I know that's like one of the three big genres of stories. You got uh, you know man against nature. A uh, person who never brushes his hair doing massive financial crimes. And then um, I don't remember what the other one is. It's a disaster of a book. I mean, it is like it's weird because it's the only I actually like Michael Lewis's books. Me too. A lot. And I've been reading him for I mean, this is, again, me uh, being able to play the old person card. I remember reading his like campaign trail shit when I was in high school for the uh the nomination that Bob Dole wound up winning. And it was, he made like Alan Keyes seem like a likable, interesting human being, which in retrospect is like a red flag. But at the time yeah. I was like, what can't this guy do? And it was, uh, this was like, I think he finally found a subject that like defeated his capacity to humanize them in a basic way. He clearly believes in SBF. This is so the, the story of the book is that Lewis was embedded with Sam Bankman Freed as uh, FTX peaked and then fell apart and then uh, there was, you know, whatever, the moment of legal reckoning that we're in now. The book came out the day that Sam Bankman-Fried's trial started in lower Manhattan. It is a huge missed opportunity in the sense that for all of that, for all of the many crimes that Lewis witnessed, he spends most of the time uh, like referring to Sam Bankman-Fried as if he's like uh, sort of a hapless neurodivergent child who's caught up in the world of adults, which is, I think, the worst possible angle that you could take on it. Yeah, I um like you. I loved a lot of Michael Lewis's writing. I um I don't know if you've ever read Liar's Poker. Yeah, I have a copy of it here. I was like skimming it over before I did my review, and then I realized that it, it kind of didn't really matter. Liar's Poker again, in terms of humanizing stuff that's disgusting, that's like early '90s Wall Street bond trader behavior. It yeah. still fucking hits. It's still good. It's an amazing book. It's like a fucking amazing book. It's like. It was the first like thing he wrote because he was Lewis was a bond trader and he worked under all these guys and he worked under the guy who invented mortgage backed securities, Lewis Ranieri. And there's all the like there are a lot of like great financial books from this period, like just really interesting, gross stories. There are these hilarious chapters where like how uh Ranieri and all his uh bond traders would just do things like um eat nine cheeseburgers for lunch yeah. yes and the oh, tubs, yeah. of, uh, the tubs of guacamole who could order the yeah. most guacamole <laughs> yeah oh, like just an amazing read actually like pretty edifying on getting you to understand like financial instruments and how some of this stuff came to be and like yeah he does he does do the thing where he humanizes people who are gross or sometimes even like outright criminal but it, in liar's poker i never felt like it was like exonerating yeah. Like with this, it seems like he's working for SBF's defense. Yeah, in a way that kind of like, again, it would be, I think, more egregious if he had worked harder on it. He really didn't. I mean, that like Lewis makes pretty clear that effective altruism, which is the justification that Sam Bankman Fried had for trying to make all these billions of dollars, the idea there basically being, I'm going to make as much money as I can. And then Shortly before I die, I'm going to donate it in such a way that uh, makes it so we never have another pandemic. I'm going to give a billion dollars to Trump to not run for president. Yes. <laughs> so that's the other bit of it is that so Sam Bankman Freed, like everybody else in his cohort of awful rich guys, is whacked on Adderall 24 seven. This is not mentioned, but it is like he never goes to bed. He never tells anybody what he's doing. And he is constantly off just like making plays Brett Favre style, just free booting, <laughs> throwing the ball left-handed to see, like, run it up the flagpole, see who salutes. So the Trump bit, the idea that he, like, offered the Trump campaign $5 billion, so that was the price that he got. When he offered them, he was like, what would it take for him not to run for president again? And that was, he says, the number that he was quoted back. There's no, this is another problem for, for Michael Lewis in writing this book. There is no reason to believe 
anything that Sam Bankman Fried says. All he's a sociopath, and everything yeah. that he says in the book, up to and including, I and mean, he tells Lewis at a lot of points where he's like, I realize that people found me unsettling to be around because I'm like a haunted doll. And so I started working on my facial expressions so that when people talked to me, I was doing stuff with my face that was like sort of similar to what they'd expect if they were talking to a regular guy. And then I would just tell them whatever they wanted, which, again, is something that like if you read like the Green River Killer saying that you'd be like, oh, it pretty much <laughs> yeah. checks out. Yeah, he's, well, he's, 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 he's Francis Bitcoin Hyde. <laughs> I can't bear witness Solana before it's become do you see <laughs> I, I, I am becoming I, the beanbag <laughs> I can't hate on Michael Lewis too hard because uh, the guy basically paid my salary for five years but also uh, I mean, he's the best he, at Felix, what he does this is what's Felix, so sad about this Felix Michael Lewis was on this current season of Billions Hosting yes. a liar's, yeah. He was hosting a liar's poker reunion drinks at like the Century Club uh, with Wags. Okay, so, I I need to. I've been yeah, like you, you, I've been yeah. behind on all on all of this. I'm. Will has told me that the new season of Billions, um, that the writers should both be imprisoned and given <laughs> awards for their service to TV. I am so excited to watch it. You yeah. you have no idea. Let's raise a glass to crass motherfuckers and the 35th anniversary of Liar's Poker. What a beautiful con you pulled, Lewis. They all think that Liar's Poker was a love letter to them. Kudos. Wasn't a con, Wags. I just wrote it the way it was, and people see in it what they want to see. Like disco balls and Coke mirrors. (laughs) Salut. I will say that of all the things, so Lewis has had this disastrous press tour promoting the book where he's like just sort of gone out of his way to say things that really like undermine, like make you wonder if you ever actually liked any of his work anyway. Like it's like that bad a thing. The billions cameo is mentioned in passing and like the, there's a guardian profile of him. That's like the definitive thing about this book and the press tour and all that. That was as ominous to me as anything else, because it, that is very much when they ask you to do that, it means that you're like a status symbol. You're like a rich person thing, like a person that rich people would identify as, uh, you know, a bauble to have around. And saying yes to that, especially around the time that you're getting ready to promote this book, suggests, again, that he's just out of pocket, that it's a broken play and he's taking shots. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, uh, I don't, yeah, it's it's depressing. I mean, celebrity is intoxicating, but I, I do think you're right that a lot of these interviews, it's like he's trying to get yelled at and, yeah. unquote, like, Maybe he's a savvier operator than we realize, but it's just even if that is what he's doing, it's like you're a good writer. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, you don't need to get like that kind of heat. Like the idea of just like making everyone so mad that they buy your book the way that when a pro wrestlers in, you know, wrestling in Cincinnati, they're like, I can't believe I'm in Cincinnati. This town sucks. (laughs) And then everybody boos. You don't need to do that. He's like 20 books into this career that, you know, he got $5 million for the movie rights to this shit before he started writing it. Like just sit this one out if you want. Oh, I I did appreciate though the details about Sam Bankman Fried's insane parents, the Stanford professors and how they bought, they bought a German shepherd who would kill on verbal command because they were so afraid of like the death threats they were getting. And then detail about how they didn't tell Sam the kill word. None of these people are really the dog was going to kill yeah, him. They got, they got the dog from fucking green room that killed all your <laughs> <laughs> They were like, just don't agitate this dog. Like don't bounce your knee up and down compulsively. He hates that. Like that is. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 it was very scary for him because the verbal commands as the, the word used to put the dog in, in beast mode is very similar to the sound a fidget spinner makes so sam <laughs> he was not visiting his parents very much can i say one thing from it's not from my review jacob backrack reviewed the book in the new republic i think shout out definitive we love we love shout jacob. Out jacob the love, uh, we love jacob though we made the comparison which i think is like the one thing that if you don't read the book that you can kind of crystallize your understanding of it he compares Sam Bankman-Fried to AJ Soprano. And I think that <laughs> it's extremely, not just because he is, as I'm, I'm quoting Jacob incorrectly, probably off the top of my head, but as like the like boring, spoiled son of boring, spoiled parents. But there's also, it's the same way that AJ is like periodically he can 
sort of like you almost feel that there's a soulfulness in there because he's like, everything sucks. I hate the war that's going on. And you're like, I agree with you, AJ. Like, you're right on this one. <laughs> but like, he's really just sad because like he tried to look up a girl's dress in school and she caught him. Like, there's never anything there that has like any substance behind it. And that is like. All, the thing in this book that I think like Lewis kind of falls for is the idea of like Sam Bankman Freed constantly being like, adults are bullshit. Books are bullshit. Most of this stuff's bullshit too. <laughs> and he's, he responds as if he'd like never heard that before. Like he'd never met a ninth grader who was annoying. And so he's like, this guy is on some shit. You don't have to agree with the crypto stuff. But he has bars. When he says bedtime is just something that your mom and dad made up. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is like um, if he met season three, AJ, and was like, "Wow, wait, I've never heard of Nietzsche. Tell me more." I actually, I, I want to move on to uh, like uh, we've, we've neglected the reading series on on, to, on the show because of world events, but I would like to uh, just return briefly to uh, domestic politics, and I would like uh, with Felix because, of course, you know about wrestling, and you know David because you cover sports. I really do want to talk a little bit about this mega Washington Post profile of Jim Jordan yes. and his career as a, let's just say his somewhat troubled career as a wrestling coach because uh, there, there were real, issues. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot. A lot, a lot of they had, they had a lot of his te- a lot of his players had trouble cutting weight. Yeah, yeah if, he, I, if he played a more popular sport, this would all be like. Despite adversity, Jim Jordan succeeded, <laughs> but he doesn't get like the Michael Vick treatment. Yeah, like I, collegiate wrestling in America, if you are the best ever, right? If you're the absolute best, your prize is getting killed by a DuPont heir. If you are <laughs> the second, if you're the second best ever and you like don't want to go into MMA, your lifetime earnings for being like the best ever at this sport that's been around for like thousands of years and was written about like it's in the first Olympics. Uh, this thing that is in the Bible, you would uh, receive lifetime earnings of like $21,000 in a shaker bottle. Yep. It is like ignoring like molestation, like o- over those stakes is so insane. It's so insane. Yeah. Well, it, it is. I mean, I, Dennis Hastert did it. It was the last last guy who had this. I mean, he was the guy molesting. Jim Jordan yes. ignored it. But it still, it, it boggles the mind. Well, I mean, the, the profile makes pretty clear that Jim Jordan is like an, an elite level wrestling talent, but also a complete psychopath. Yeah. And I think, look. When, when, even like, by, the, also, the even by the standards of collegiate wrestlers that's yeah. something that i thought the story yeah. did it has its issues but i did get it right like everybody that's quoted in it all the other college wrestlers that he coached all of those guys have like been to jail for financial crimes and stuff like everybody they all have issues and jordan is 10 times crazier than any of them yeah like like, like, like if you grow up wrestling in america it is like sort of a form of like institutionalized child abuse it's like like wrestling i'm not gonna say it's bad because a lot it's produced a lot of great mma fighters so we really can't say if it's good or bad so like, <laughs> music, like we don't know we don't know like on balance we don't know like look eddie eddie alvarez eddie alvarez one of the most exciting fighters ever is it bad no i don't know but like is it good to make a nine-year-old dehydrate themselves so they could lose 10 pounds, you know, <laughs> in three days. Probably not. No. Uh, are any of these things good? Probably not. Uh, but yeah, it, it like wrestlers um, are forced from a very young age to do a lot of things that no one would ever want to do. And Doubly so big, if you play for Jim Jordan. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. Uh, and it like... I've known a lot of people who are wrestlers through training and like for the most part, they are very good people to know. Like they, they will show up for you. They'll help you move. They will do all this shit. They're very competent people, but they are also basically abuse victims. And, um, you know, on the other side, I always think of the guy who came to our bar when I worked at a bar who was a state level wrestling champion, a very respected wrestler in his youth. And when he got out of college in his 20s, it seemed like his 
not his hobby, but his job was to come into our bar and try to get kicked out as soon as possible. <laughs> well, it's a bad life. Well, speaking of institutionalized abuse, I mean, you might think of that when the words wrestling and the name Jim Jordan enter your mind. But I really like the, the headline that the Washington Post went with here, which is relentless wrestler <laughs> as a way to describe mm. uh, the career of Jim Jordan. But it begins like this. It's a, it, uh, this is by uh, David Moranis and Sally Jenkins. They write, His wrestlers at Ohio State called him Jimmy and idolized him as an Olympic-level legend in their ancient sport. During the nine seasons that Jim, Jer Jim Jordan served as an assistant coach, they admired his propriety. They never saw him smoke or drink or heard him swear and studied his technique and style, from his single-leg takedowns to his odd victory strut, marching in a zombie-like <laughs> circle, straight-legged, arms aloft. Psychopath, lunatic, yeah. monster. Um, but they dreaded sparring with Jordan at practice. He was unforgiving, smothering, taking his would-be disciples to the edge of what was allowed, if not beyond. When Mike Schick arrived at Ohio State as a prized freshman recruit in 1988, he was tested by Jordan in the wrestling room at Larkins Hall. As Schick recalled, Jordan pursued him to the end of the mat, pressing him against the wall and again, pressing him against the wall again and again, the freshman struggling to keep his balance as the pliant wall swayed behind him, until Jordan cut his legs out from under him and thumped him smack on his tailbone. Then Jordan pounced on him and pressed his chest against Schick's mouth, crowding it to where he feared he would suffocate. He beat the living snot out of me. I mean, literally, recalled Schick, now a successful high school wrestling coach on Florida's Gulf, Gulf Coast. He'd do this, oh gosh, golly gee, Opie Taylor off the mat, but on the mat, he was like a pit bull. Yeah, that's, um, there are a lot of great, like, cheating moves in wrestling. Uh, I previously mentioned the Schultz brothers, uh, one of whom was killed by the DuPont era. They had um, a move where it was called the Schultz Front Headlock Series, where the headlock series in and of itself is not illegal, but because they knew some grappling, they would apply an anaconda or a Darce choke while they were doing it, which uh, these are not allowed in, in wrestling. But they would literally choke people unconscious and lay their unconscious body on the mat and be like, look, I got a pin. <laughs> like there's a lot of like dickish cheating moves. in you know, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. There's a lot of this in there. Uh, I do the, the detail of him being a, uh, you know, golly gosh, G guy when not when not uh, green lighting guys in practice. Um, another tradition, uh, the same in politics. John A. Boehner, the former Republican Speaker of the House, saw that characteristic in his fellow Ohioan. So repeatedly undercut by Jordan and his right wing Freedom Caucus that he finally retired in 2015, wearied by the contention. He is wound tighter than a baseball, Boehner said. You just see him walk. There is an intensity there that you don't see in other members. When they passed in hallways, Boehner would try to diffuse Jordan's fervor by greeting him with the query, Who are you? What are you planning to fuck up today? <laughs> As an assistant wrestling coach and graduate of, at Ohio State from 1986 to 1994, he was on campus during the most grievous scandal in the school's history. Over two decades, Richard Strauss, an athletic team doctor, molested scores of male students and athletes, especially wrestlers, with abuses ranging from excessive fondling of genitals during supposedly routine examinations to anal rape, according to a university report. When the crimes belatedly surfaced in 2018, Jordan insisted that he had been unaware of Strauss's behavior. His office issued uncompromis the uncompromising declaration, Congressman Jordan never saw any abuse, never heard about any abuse, and never had any abuse reported to him during his time as coach at Ohio State. Jordan issued that denial despite the fact that Strauss, often referred to by athletes as Dr. Jellypaws, was notorious, according to many members of the wrestling team, for lingering nude in the sauna and showers with them, often returning to take a second shower if he saw them coming down for their practices room. He routinely examined them in darkness in his nearby office, stood close by them at the scales when they weighed in naked, and dressed and undressed at a locker adjacent to Jordan's. There is, unfortunately, like a very big problem with sexual abuse in combat sports. Um, it's unfortunately pretty universal. Um, Sugar Ray Leonard, the boxer, experienced horrible abuse by a uh, doctor who worked for the Olympic team. And um, it, it is the same sort of thing you, you see repeatedly where like these very fucking tough guys, be they wrestlers or boxers or whatever, this will happen to them. And then there's like an unfortunate self victimization aspect where it's like, holy shit, I'm like this big tough guy. How could this happen to me? And they just like are too ashamed to tell anyone. But I, I think a lot of the time it is like coaches or doctors taking advantage of how like being a good combat athlete is 
like you are programmed to do what you're told yep. to a high degree. There's a lot of that in the story. I mean, I don't want to get ahead of, of Will on it, but that there's like the the abuse that Strauss, again, like not a, a master criminal here. There's stories about guys going in there with their nose is broken or their thumb is hurt. And he just like tugs on their penis for five minutes. Yeah. And they leave and are, there's a bit where one of them is like, complains like basically like why was he doing this like i was there for a broken nose and jordan just stands up from a table nearby where this conversation is happening and goes i don't have anything to do with that and just like kind of wanders off but it is clear that that's like they their understanding of hierarchy and where they fit into it means that they're going to not permit this stuff to happen in a you know any sort of like weakness way they understand what their role on this team is and then there you can see like the abdication of the people that actually do have some power in this is yeah. like that much more disgusting because everybody, I mean, these guys are doing what they think they're supposed to do. And I think that like Jordan, you know, he's not a very insightful guy. There's not like a really insightful portrait of him that emerges from the story. I mean, I think he knew that something bad was happening and was just like, couldn't be asked to care about it. No. Yeah. He could not give less of a shit. Uh, can we, can I just read your says, next paragraph out loud? Sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. It says, Jordan stood apart from his rowdier, beer-swilling teammates. He was self-denying, sometimes training three times a day, even as he worked for, toward a degree in economics. One thing I want to do with my wrestling is be meaner, Jordan announced as a sophomore. In wrestling, Andy Baggett, who covered the team for the Wisconsin State Journal, observed a story about Jordan in 1984. The more you starve, the meaner you get. Jordan starved himself. His diet consisted mostly of whole grain bread and water. He sweated so hard to drop weight, he'd sometimes get shuddering chills, which he cured with a cup of coffee. Small wonder he was such a clawing antagonist. In the spring of 1985, Jordan was spotted in the shadowy depths of the Wisconsin football stadium all alone, jumping rope until he was in a lather. Just four days later, he became the NCAA champion in the 134-pound weight class. So, I mean, the guy is like, yeah, he's a really dedicated wrestler. I just want to get to this quote when he, as a coach. As a young coach, Jordan seemed to take literally one of his favorite quotes from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. In this world, the man must be either an anvil or a hammer. <laughs> it would seem he's taking that quite literally. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a little like the idea of like reading that as like inspiration and then just like putting it up over a picture of Mr. Bean and posting it on Instagram or whatever is just <laughs> astonishingly grim. No, I mean, yeah, he's a uh, this this guy's he, he's really good at wrestling. He really loves wrestling. But I mean, did you guys see the story uh, this last week when like the the speaker uh, the speaker votes were going on and he was like people thought he was going to be the next speaker of the house. But his it's clearly why this story exists. This is like yeah. their lead sports writer and literally David Moranis were asked to write ten thousand words on a guy that thought, like this came out basically the day after the news broke that his colleagues were like, "You will never be speaker of the house." Yeah. Well, the and like when it looked like he might be Speaker of the House, there were news reports coming out about Republican politicians getting anonymous text messages saying basically to like them and their wives or something, just being like, listen, bitch, vote for Jim Jordan or it's Curtis for you. We're going to fucking strangle your dog. <laughs> and they were like, and like a lot of these. And of course, when confronted with it, Jim Jordan said, I have no idea that this was happening. Yeah. I didn't that, hear anything about this. I didn't see anything about it. It's not me. Can I just say that is. I cannot overstate like how fucking hard it is to be an NCAA champion in wrestling, especially in like, you know, the lighter weight divisions. That is where a lot of the deepest talent pools are. But uh, like doing that as a way to become speaker, that is like such a wrestler way to like whip votes. Like, <laughs> like we're look, we're fucking grinding. We're not doing any of this glad handing shit. We have to threaten to kill everyone's dog. Yep. If you don't do that, you don't want it. <laughs> yep. It's such a, yeah, just such like a dickhead jock way of doing it. Uh, moving on to here, it says the wrestlers were housed in a cinder block room with rickety steel lockers in a communal shower area of yellowing glazed tile. Larkins was also the main campus recreation facility. Its doors open to anyone. It was notorious as a place where voyeurs would leer at nude young men in the showers or worse. There were incidences of public masturbation, peeping Tomism, and sex in its dingy corners and stalls. It was a sexualized and at times predatory environment, the investigative report commissioned by the university confirmed. The leading predator was Strauss, a slight mousy man who haunted the showers. Strauss's interest in the wrestlers was such an open, if grim, joke that freshmen heard about it on their first day in the program. As Schick stood in line waiting for his initial physical, upperclassmen did loud catcalls. Oh, Strauss is going to like you, someone teased. 
During the exam, Schick recalled, Strauss manipulated his penis for almost five minutes while massaging his buttocks. Schick bore it with gritted, te- gritted teeth. Toward the end of the exam, he made the mistake of mentioning that he once had a blood infection. infection. Strauss flicked off the lights and went over Schick again in the dark. When Schick finally came out, the team was whistling at him. Doc found his new favorite guy. I mean, horrible to think about, but like, 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 what do you make of this? Like, in light of like the psycho, men- the psycho wrestler mentality that he has of like, you know, eating eating moldy bread and fucking jumping rope until you vomit, and like to be a champion. Like, can you see in that like so, like something of like how he would basically think that what Strauss was doing was okay? You know, or just like don't complain yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah, because it is like. What you have to do to be a champion. Yeah. Well, yeah, not even that, though. But, like, you know, like, among wrestlers, there is an ethos of, like, you know, like, don't ever fucking make excuses. Don't, like, just if you lose, say, he was the better man. I I fucked up. I sucked. Like, whenever you, Ben Askren, I always think about. Ben Askren was, he's a now-retired MMA fighter. He was one one of the greatest uh, collegiate wrestlers of his time. But he um, he failed to make the Olympic team, I think it was. And he they interviewed him after and he just was like, I fucking suck. I shit like I was I, I'm not good. And they're some of the only athletes you'll ever see do that. And it is it's not just like a sports ethos. They apply this to everything. And I do think, unfortunately, with Jordan, uh, it's twisted in a way where it's like, Literally, like if you get sexually abused, like you didn't want it bad enough. This is the thing. Like, it's kind your of fault. Hard to use it as a framework for a story, too, because I think that's that's more or less right. I mean, the idea of like relentless wrestler. I saw people complaining about the headline, and like I get it to a certain extent because it, like, I mean, obviously you're not. It's not going to be the headline, you know, that it's just like a big asshole who's also balding. Colin Jim Gordon, Jim Gordon, like almost, you know, like it's still a newspaper. They have to like be normal yeah. about it. But there is like that, that like sort of tunnel vision approach to stuff. And then that like very, which I think does sort of come through in the story, Felix said, like this like very binary understanding of like victory and failure and like doing something or not doing something. That that like, for one thing, it's not any way to, you know, govern. And that sort of, it does come through that that's like not anything that Jordan is really interested in, in doing. Like, not just, I mean, John Boehner being the guy that's held up as, like, sort of the avatar of reason in a story. Like, first of all, that lets you know what you're dealing with. Yeah. But it I mean, is I also this, sort of... At least John Boehner drinks. Right. Yeah. This is yes. So that's another thing that comes through in this story is that not only is Jim Jordan, like, a five, six and a half, 135-pound hyper-violent aggressor type, he's also stony sober, doesn't curse, doesn't gamble. There's a bit in there where yeah. he... Uh, he, you want to do the Mark Coleman bit? Were you about to read that? No, no, no. You, you, you said oh, wait, it. Right. Mark, Mark Coleman's in this article? He's in yeah. this. So, Felix. Oh, I love Jim Mark Jordan. Coleman. Coleman challenges anyone on the team to take him down, and he'll pay them $10,000 or something. And Jordan goes, I don't gamble, but all right, how about lunch? And then he does it, and he pins Mark Coleman. And Coleman tells this story that he was like, I thought he was going to rip my toe off. Like, I thought my knee was going to blow out. So it's he's clearly like that. I guess he was that good a wrestler, but he's also like that much of a fucking pit bull of a human being. He's just also like, he couldn't even take the money. Like he was like, he, he could have had $10, this champion wrestler. And then was like, I would like to go to Panera. Yeah. That I just, so people have context. Jordan won his title at 143 pounds. Uh, Coleman was one of the first UFC heavyweight champions. Yeah. He's like he 200 was, pounds. Yeah. He was more of a natural to a fiver in modern MMA standards, but still a really fucking big, strong guy. Everyone who ever trained with him said he was enormously strong. He had incredible technique as a wrestler. Like one of, one of the best. Um, also incredibly nice guy. You wouldn't expect it. You wouldn't expect the Ohio state wrestler who achieved so many accolades to, uh, be such a nice guy, but people have always said just a, a sweetheart of a man. And this little scary rodent almost fucking rips his leg yeah. off. Yeah. For Panera. <laughs> I mean, like, we, we get into that, um, his sort of a victory at all costs and this kind of like hyper aggressive binary thinking. I mean, I think, I think this, this quote sums it up. I'm just going to just way of foregrounding it. Uh, they write, when Vasquez returned to the practice room, he said he met Jordan and a cluster of other wrestlers. 
Dr. Strauss's hands are cold as fuck. He was grabbing my balls and everything, Vasquez recalled, complaining. According to Vasquez, some of the wrestlers erupted in laughter, but Jordan put his hands up and said, I've got nothing to do with that. Yeah. Mike Flush, an older mm. wrestler who came to Ohio State after military service, recalled standing in the locker room doorway one afternoon when another wrestler complained in the presence of Jordan how Strauss had groped him. Jordan responded, if he did touch me like that, I'd have broken his neck like a piece of balsa wood. Few said he could not forget the specific language used. It just sticks with you because it's just a weird phrase. So once again, it's like the idea of like, if this guy jacked you off for five minutes and stuck his fingers up your asshole, it was because you were weak or you should have killed him. Or you should have pinned him or something like that. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. Hard to know what to do with that. I mean, honestly, the other bit that I would flag from this, too, is that, I, like, he's just like that. It wasn't like a circumstance. I mean, I'm like, circumstantial in the sense that he was, like, you know, raised in this culture. All the points that Felix made there are very valid and correct. He just never fucking chilled out. This is his approach to every single thing that he's done in public life. And that's, again, you know, there's only so much there to write about. Like, there's not, you know, as with any sufficiently obnoxious reactionary type, at some point, like, you're doing them a favor if you're trying to mine their psychological motivations for this. Like, some people are just the sum of their actions. They're exactly what they appear to be. And, yeah, that's what comes through. You read 10,000 words to find out that this guy's an asshole. Yeah. Well, I think think that just about sums it up. Um, All right. I think we should uh, leave it there for today. Sure. Sounds good. All right. Um, Till next time, guys. Bye bye, David. See we ya. will link to your review of uh, Going Infinite in the show description. Oh, thanks very much. All right. Cheers, guys. Till next time. Bye bye. Yep. Bye. Bye.